Turn to Galatians 6.14 if you would. I'm just going to read one verse and we will cover that today. Galatians 6.14, just one verse. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Back home at Living Hope, when we moved into the building, I'm no longer the lead pastor, so I'm not leading through the transition out of the school we met in for 14 years and the building. Uh, I was honored when Ben asked me to preach uh, the first sermon in the building. It was really a practice meeting, but it was the first sermon, so he asked me to do that, and I preached this text to our church, and what I said to them was though we have a new building, we do not have a new message. Our message is the same message we've preached for decades, and that message is about Jesus Christ. The way we say it back at Living Hope, our mission statement is we exist to proclaim Jesus Christ to everyone in order to present everyone mature in him. We want to share Christ with those who don't know Christ. We want to share Christ with those who know Christ because everything is summed up in Jesus Christ. He's our all in all. We will never, ever, not now, not in eternity, we will never move beyond Jesus Christ. He's the sum of all things. The morning star, he's lovely to behold. And so I was eager to talk about Christ to living hope, and I'm eager to proclaim Christ to you today. To get started, let me ask you to think about the best-known stories in the Old Testament. Uh, for those of you that have read the Old Testament and know it, what, what co- don't shout out answers, please, but what comes to mind as you think about the Old Testament? What are the stories you most recollect? I, I think... David and Goliath lead, lead the way. I think that might be number one on lists. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den seems to be fairly popular. Noah and the flood, perhaps Abraham. Uh, high on my list is a story of a guy named Gideon. And I'll tell you the story about Gideon just so you're familiar with it. It is, it's a wonderful story. The story is found in Judges chapter 6 through 8. And in Judges, there's this depressing cycle that takes place over generations. So one generation would be godly, the next generation would not be godly. It didn't move fast, but move it did. The cycle was sin, God would raise up a judge to deliver the people, and then they would slide back to sin. Gideon was a simple, insecure farmer. He he was fearful in his makeup. And God uses him to deliver his people from Midianites. Gideon, the part of the story that's perhaps best known, he not once, twice, puts out a fleece to make sure God is going to honor his word. He puts God to the test and God in his patience forbears with Gideon. When Gideon speaks, an army of 32,000 gathers to go up against the Midianites and the Lord speaks to Gideon. This is Judges 7, 2 and 3. The Lord said to Gideon, and I just want to say, this does not make sense to us. This, this, is, this is 
This is upside down, backwards, inside out. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And if you know the story, as it goes on, the army is reduced from 10,000 to 300, to only 300 by this test of how they drink water. Uh, those who drink water, lapping with their hand, keeping alert, are the ones chosen to go up against the Midianites. Why does God take them from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300? The text says, so that they do not boast. So that they do not boast. There's a tendency in the human heart to boast about ourselves and to boast about our accomplishments. We want credit for things we do. When someone else receives credit for something we did, we think it one of the larger injustices in life. If you've had this happen at work, someone else is given credit, you did it or it was your idea. We know that does not go with, uh, well with us because... We want to boast about ourselves. We tend to trust ourselves. We want to impress others. We want to get credit. And in all of this, it simply reveals our tendency to be self-absorbed. We're most aware of ourselves. It's a natural condition that plagues us all. In our text, Paul slays boasting. He kills it. He does away with it. He leaves one exception. He says he won't boast. He says, except I'll boast in the cross of Christ. And then he wants us to understand the effect of the cross on the Christian. It is my hope that this verse is stamped on our hearts. What I've prayed for and what I hope encounters each one of us is this verse stamped on our lives. I pray that it affects us always and forever. So first point. Paul says, far be it from me to boast. The tongue is the most troublesome muscle in the body. Now I know we might think of our literal heart being a problem, but when the Bible talks about heart, it doesn't mean our physical heart. The tongue is a problem. When godly Isaiah was confronted with the glory of the Lord, he said, woe is me. And he didn't say then, woe is me, I'm sinful. He said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. As he was in the presence of God, what he was most aware of was that his words were fallen. His words were not, were not godly words. The, the tongue reveals our heart like no other muscle. And as our tongue is at work, we tend to put ourselves in a favorable light. We tend to boast. Like Israel would have been tempted, like Gideon would have been tempted, We're inclined to take credit for what is accomplished. And sometimes when we prosper, we may be tempted to forget God altogether. As in Deuteronomy 6. We may altogether think, my hands have done this. My hands have accomplished this. And it's true we worked. But God is behind all of this. Bible says the words we speak come from within our inner self. 
and our words give us away, but Paul is determined not to boast. Paul has a conviction that he's not going to give himself over to boasting. Why would that be? The answer is that in our heart, there's only room for glory in one direction. We we don't have the ability to give lots of glory to lots of different things. There's one primary place glory goes. So Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Paul would not boast because his thinking was God-centered. He was thinking vertically. He was aware of what God had done in his life. And so he is determined not to boast in this life. He was so concerned about this that when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I'm concerned that you might think too highly of me. Most of us would say, if you want to think highly of me, knock yourself out. Don't stop. Keep going. I've got, I've got some time. Uh, go ahead. Paul was concerned they thought too highly of him. It's because The eyes of his heart were fixed on Christ and it was determined to give glory to God. What Paul was aware of keenly, and you might recall his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, what Paul was keenly aware of was this, everything he had, he had received. Now some of us know that's true about our lives, but Paul knew it and lived it. He breathed that. He knew everything he had, he had received. So when he writes to the church in Corinth about grace, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Corinthians were boasting on a number of fronts about their accomplishments. And Paul saying to them, everything you have, you've received. He's trying to say in football language, he's trying to say you're the wide receiver, not the quarterback. When the ball comes your way, you receive it. But this is not a case of you earning everything that you have. That's not what life is like. This is all of grace. What's the effect on our thinking and our hearts when we realize we've received everything, when that lands, I mean, when we, when we lay hold of that and we see that everything that's come my way, every single blessing, I've not earned it. I've, I've not deserved it. What, what change does that make? Well, surely there's gratitude in our hearts and our heart is filled with humility and joy and love. The kingdom of God has landed in our lives because we realize we're not our own and everything we have is a gift of grace and that makes it glorious. So Paul said to the church in Ephesus, here's how then you should treat others. Ephesians 4, 1 and following. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, and I love the way the word all is inserted. It doesn't just say humility. It says with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because we've received mercy, because everything we have we've received, 
because that's a true picture of our condition, Paul then says, you turn and be merciful with others. Be patient with them. Be kind with them. He says, bearing with one another in love. Why would he put it that way? He puts it that way because each one of us has, shall we say, issues. Each one of us has not yet arrived. We have our imperfections and our flaws. There's not a one of us mature enough or good enough to simply be held up as the model. We only have one model, that's Jesus Christ. None of us can be held up in that light. None of us have arrived to that extent. And so if you're around me for a period of time, I can guarantee you this, you'll need to bear with me in love because I'll say something or do something. You think, that was kind of off. I didn't appreciate that. The thing is, we're aware of that in others. We are not as aware in ourselves. We don't see it as quickly in us. But we're called to Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've received. And part of that being worthy is we want to boast in God's glory. That's our bigger cause. Everything we do, every minute of every day, when we're thinking clearly, we want to glorify him with our lives. So the proverb, Proverbs 27, 1 says, don't boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. I recently caught the conclusion of a long drive contest on the golf channel. These guys hit the ball like 430 yards, 450 yards. It's unbelievable what they do. Uh, So this one brother, and by that I mean an African-American, this one brother won on this particular event. He was excited. I mean, he was wound up. He was expressive. And uh, And they asked him what he thought and how it felt, what interviewers always do, suck the microphone in his face. And he started to say, this is, and he stops. And he says, I just want to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to pause there. And I thought, I don't know if he's a legitimate brother or not, meaning a Christian, but like, that's the right impulse. I've got this skill. I've got this talent. I've got this ability. I've received it. And as he, as he goes in his excitement to express himself, Uh, he's not interested in talking about himself. He's interested in talking about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a Garfield cartoon. Garfield's a cat, and this cartoon was around years ago, so I don't know if you're familiar, but this one cartoon is, to me, funny. Garfield says, look, I'm, I'm tired of talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? That's what we tend to do when it comes to boasting. I've talked about me, now you talk about me. But the point Paul's making, he's going to come to, there's just this one boast I want to make. It's not to say we don't share our lives and talk about ourselves and what we're going through. It's that we do so in light of Jesus Christ. We aren't functional atheists. We do so in light of everything we have we've received and we're aware of the gospel. And so we're looking at Jesus and now in light of that, We share our lives with one another. So the apostle doesn't want to boast. He put it this way, but far be it from me to boast, except he's not going to talk about himself, not going to praise himself, not going to look for credit, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second point, I will boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the exception. Why this boast? 
in light of everything Paul had legitimately accomplished in his life, why this boast? He could have said he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, or he could trace his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. He could have talked about his zealous efforts to keep the law. He has, he has reasons for the boast, and I want to give you four of them quickly. First boast is this, first reason for a boast. These will come from the scriptures. Uh, number one, Christ died for us. So Romans 5, 6 and following. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want to pause and insert the qualification to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ is you must be ungodly. It's for the sick that Jesus came. He didn't come for the well. The healthy. He didn't come for the ones who think their act is together and they're better than everyone else or more rich than everyone else or more gifted than others. He didn't come for them. He came for the sick. He came for the ungodly. Every one of us who's in Christ at some point had to see that we're ungodly. Our sin had to be visible and evident for us to come to faith in Christ. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to underscore this verse for you because it is common in life, as we live the Christian life, it's common for us to want God to make much of us, to somehow bless us, to somehow be mindful of us. And we can question his love for us if we don't see him moving on our behalf the way we think he should move. If we think a healing should take place and it doesn't, we can question his goodness and his kindness. If we should have got a promotion and someone else did, we wonder about his faithfulness and his kindness. The spouse is unfaithful to us. We wonder about his love and his kindness. We question where he is. But let me read verse 8 again. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We err if we look for his love in our circumstances. Because our circumstances in this fallen world are often going to disappoint. I do not deny there are blessings mixed in and they're wonderful. There are good gifts we receive. But it's a fallen world. And we will know suffering if we simply live long enough. Hard things will come our way. We measure the love of God for us by surveying the wondrous cross. We look there to measure the love of God for us. Otherwise, as we've received him, it's a contract, it's a blank piece of paper. We sign the bottom and he can do with us whatever he wants. He can give us 100 days or 1,000 days or 10,000 days. He can bless us in certain ways or withhold. He, He can do with us what he pleases because he's God. And his purposes are at work in all the earth. He's good and we trust him. But hard things may come our way. Verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
So Christ died for us. Number two, Christ died for us that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So here we are, we're ungodly. Now we're the unrighteous. That, here it is, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If God isn't in the gospel, it isn't good news. If we just go to heaven, this wonderful place, and Christ isn't there, then we will be, of all people, most disappointed. Because we want to behold him. We want to see him as he is. And we want to be with him for eternity because the love of our heart is fixed on him because of everything he's done for us and because of who he is. Christ died to bring us to God. D.A. Carson said, the only thing of transcendent importance to human beings is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is eternal life. And this morning as we talk about these things, I want to underscore, I mean, here we are just living our life, our normal life out, but we're handling weighty matters. We're handling eternal matters because we live this life for the glory of God, but there is the eternal life beyond this life that is of the utmost importance. And we're living this life, preparing for that life. The only thing of transcendent importance to human beings is the knowledge of God. I agree with that statement. Third, Christ died for our sins. And this is wonderful news because you and I could not do this. No one else could die for us. If Tim would say, I'm gonna lay down my life for your sins, it doesn't matter. If I say the same thing, doesn't matter. Because we're not sinless. Christ was. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. We couldn't. Fourth, Christ died our death. In my place condemned, he stood. The wages of sin, which we justly earned, were death. We're rebels, but we get grace. So in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, Jesus that is, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul's saying the same thing in the verse we're looking at in Galatians 6. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. It's glorious. And then Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I ask you, isn't Jesus lovely? When you consider that he died for our sins, he died to bring us to God. Isn't, isn't he beautiful? Is, is, isn't that the most wonderful thing that could possibly be? What, what sin or what trinket in this life could possibly compare to that? There's nothing of any comparison. We're fools to weigh something in this life so much more valuable than Jesus Christ. And so Isaac Watts penned these words in my favorite hymn, which we'll sing in a bit. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain, and you can, you can 
Put in there whatever your richest gain is. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The cross is our boast because by the death of Jesus on the cross, we gain eternal life. It is our life. That's why Paul is determined to only boast in the cross. So can you boast about yourself when you consider your sin? I'd suggest it's hard to do that. Can you boast about yourself when you behold Jesus? Like, like look at me, aren't, aren't I something? There's, there is no boast there compared to the beauty and loveliness of Christ. When you survey the wondrous cross, everything Jesus did there, what grips you? What, what affects you as you behold the cross? What, what excites you? Don Carson said in an interview that he knows his students won't remember everything he teaches them. They couldn't possibly. But they will remember his passion. They will remember the things he was excited about, the things that he really cared about. So I want to ask you to reflect upon, to consider in your life what things are most exciting. We all have our interests. We all have things we enjoy. They're all good gifts from God. And it's fine to be enthusiastic about them. But nothing should surpass our passion and enthusiasm for the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing should be elevated over that as we live this life. And so this means our spouse is not elevated over that passion. Uh, Those of us who are parents with kids aren't elevating kids over that passion. Our friends aren't elevated over that passion. We're passionate about Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the key to grasping that truth... The key, I said it earlier, I'm simply repeating it. The key is seeing our sin and seeing our Savior. But that requires sovereign grace to operate. It requires God to illuminate that truth to our hearts. You can read about it. You can hear me talk about it. But it requires God turning on the lights so that this truth grabs a hold of you and fills your life with passion to live for the glory of God. Until those lights are turned on and we can read and we can study and we can pursue and grow, we do survey the wondrous cross. But everything we have, we've received. Everything is is of grace. And so God works in us and he must help us see. So how does the cross land on you? As you think, along with me now, How does the cross land on you? If you see it right, if you see it right, you will understand there's an offensive nature to the cross. So Tim Keller puts it this way. The cross is offensive by nature. And we can only grasp its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross... It's either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. And I'm asking you today, what's your view of the cross? How does it affect you? Keller says if it's neither of those two things, they haven't understood it. 
Why is that? It's because the cross makes clear statements about us. The cross makes pressing, urgent statements about our lives. The cross says that we're each sinners. We're separated from God. That's the condition of of each one of us. We are sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. The cross also says sin must be punished for God to be just. Because you would not want an unjust judge. If you had a judge in a local court room dismiss a murderer, there would be an outcry because it's unjust. How can the guilty go free? We needed a savior. We needed one to step in in our place. And we might say in that example, the judge steps down and takes our place. Sin must be punished and we need a savior. We need a savior. So I noticed the Blue Jays are struggling this year. They were in last place last time I checked. Last year was exciting. This year, not so much. I'm a Phillies fan. They're in last place too. So no comparisons to be made. What happens when your team struggles? Here's what happens to me. You might be more rabid than me. Uh, When my team struggles, I get bored. When it's not going so well, I just sort of like, I haven't even checked actually. I I don't know what they're up to. I just lose complete interest. I yawn. It's not exciting. I don't even go to Philly to a game, whereas uh, with family members, when they were doing well back five, six years ago, we went to four or five games a year, had a blast. Now we don't even bother to go. I'm bored. But I want to ask you, so where are you at with the cross of Christ? Because it's possible to become so familiar that we just yawn. We just, bored. Yeah, I know, he died. He died for my sins. It's true, but there's no effect. There's no passion. There's no commitment landing in our hearts. We aren't affected by the truth that took place there. And that's where we are wise to stop and reflect on the scriptures that speak truth about what took place there. Because when the cross of Christ captures you, third point, there's change that happens in your life. There's real change that takes place. Here's the effect of the cross on the Christian. Paul says simply, he died to the world. He died to the world. That means he no longer looks to the world for applause or or status or significance. Paul writes of himself, he's willing to be considered the scum of the earth. He's willing to be a fool for Christ. Because Christ was his all in all. Christ was his treasure. Christ was everything to him. He's willing to live for Jesus. He has died to the world. His life is found in Christ alone. He knows one day he'll give an account to Jesus. And he lives for that day and that moment. When we commit to follow Jesus. When we see the glories of Calvary. And we behold the cross, what happens at that point is we die to ourselves. The applause of people fades away. Possession and riches we know will burn up. And we start to measure this life by eternity. 
We aren't so passionate about details here because we're fixed on Christ. And when we're fixed on Christ and when our eyes are heavenward, we actually gain earth as well, said C.S. Lewis. But when we fix our eyes on this earth, we lose heaven and we gain neither in the end. C.T. Studd, famous cricket player in the 1800s and a missionary, said only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. That, by the way, is a mature Christian. When you can say, thy will be done, whatever circumstance, when your will be done, that's a mature place to be. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we die to self, so we gain life. We no longer live. Christ lives in us as we're living the Christian life. And this means that as folks encounter us, As we're living this Christian life, as folks encounter us, they encounter Christ. Because we're joined to him and we've died to ourselves. And our concern is to consider others more important than ourselves. And we're seeking to minister to them. And in doing so, people see Christ in us. If you've ever had the experience of seeing grace in someone's life that reminds you of Jesus, you know it's a glorious thing. That's what we want to be to others. As we're with people, we want them to encounter Christ through us. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, earlier in this letter, I have been crucified with Christ. It's past tense. Done deal. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul had been ruined by love. Love wrecks you. If, if you know love, love, love wrecks you. It, it undoes your life. Paul was aware that God loved him and gave himself for Paul and we can each put our name in there. Christ did that for us. So we die to the world, we die to self, and then we follow Jesus. Wherever he takes us, whatever he has for us, our eyes are fixed on him. We know we only give an account to him. So if he says, Timbuktu, Africa, we're in. We don't have a place we're afraid to go for his sake. We're, we're all in. Whatever the call, whatever the task. It'll be different things for different people. For one, it might be laying bricks for the glory of God. But we all have a calling and a vocation that we are called to. And it's a glorious thing. Because Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And we are following him, therefore, as a result. So we live to bring him glory. The Bible tells us this. He's our life, our boast. And we're willing to spend our lives for Jesus. So in Luke's gospel, it's put this way. Luke 14, 25 and following. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus did not mean to literally hate people. 
He meant that in value and importance, in every way we're following Jesus, we're living for him. Every moment of every day we're living for Jesus. These things aren't the primary reason we're living. They're blessings, they're benefits, it's glorious, but it's not the highest place. Our spouse, I mean, if you're not married yet, you want to marry someone that loves Jesus more than they love you. That's what you want. Because if they love you more than they love Jesus, that won't end well. I can guarantee that. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what comes into your mind when you hear those words? Is there anything you're clinging to that you won't let go of to follow Jesus? Here's the way it works sometimes. Sometimes there's a couple living together, not yet married. And you talk to them about Christ and you say, are are you aware that you are living in sin? And they will acknowledge it. But they're like, well, I'm, I'm in love. They're holding on to this thing they won't let go of. And it's not the path to eternal life. It's not the path to Christ. You can't make much of something in this life and simultaneously say, I love Jesus because there's only room for glory going in one direction. Glory only goes one place. And so we're either all in with Jesus or we're in with everything else, whatever you want to add to it. And you might try to add a lot of things to Jesus telling you that journey won't work and it won't prosper. I pray that you aren't clinging to anything more than you're clinging to Jesus. And then next, we share Jesus with others. I told you earlier at Living Hope, we say it this way. We proclaim Jesus Christ to everyone to present everyone mature in him. We want to share Jesus with those who do not yet believe. We want to share Jesus with those who do believe because we glory in Jesus Christ. And as we consider everything that we've received in Christ, all of the spiritual riches that are ours, as we contemplate that, then When a tough patch comes our way in this life, how could we possibly complain? How could we be upset at the one who loves us and died for us and is working all things for good in our lives? We share Christ with others. So I want to ask you if you know Jesus. I want to ask you if you know that your sins are forgiven. I'm not trying to ask you, did you pray a sinner's prayer? Asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. I'm asking, do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know your sins are covered by the blood of Christ? See, some folks lug sin around in their hearts and no one knows. Sometimes there was a secret abortion in the past that no one knows about. Sometimes something was stolen, taken from someone, and it's, it's a secret. You, you know about it. You didn't tell anybody else, but you know. And you're lugging that thing around. It's not been dealt with. In following Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. 
There's nothing we lug around. As Christians, we're free in Christ. We're free to follow and we have a burden and a yoke that's easy and light. It's not heavy. But sometimes folks carry something around and it's a weight and it weighs on your soul and you're not made to carry that. All of your sins in the past are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what do you do if Christ isn't your boast? What if you do, if as you're listening to what I'm sharing, you say, I'm, I'm not sure I'm all in with Jesus. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm there. I think I'd like to be, but I'm not sure. At that point, what Jesus promises is if we ask, we will receive. A clear and certain promise. I cannot guarantee an immediate result. But ask and you will receive is the clear promise of Jesus. The challenge is this. Many will throw up smoke screens for why they don't want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. It'll be what about this and what about that when the true issue is I simply don't want to follow him. I want to go my own way. There's a broad way. There's a broad path that many go on, Jesus says, but it leads to destruction. There's a narrow path. There's a narrow way that Jesus says leads to life. When you have Christ, you have the kingdom of God in your heart, the rule and reign of God, meaning love, joy, and peace are yours by faith. And therefore we boast about Jesus because he is our life. Christ died for us. He died to bring us to God. He died for our sins. He died our death. And why did he do this? He did it because he's for us and he loves us. His love is fastened on us in every situation. I think it's remarkable in view of our tendency to want to take credit and boast about ourselves. Is it not amazing what Jesus does for us in loving us, but his love is fixed and he alone is our boast. So in Romans 8, 35 and following, this section of scripture always lifts me up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God That is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not even our worst sin. Nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. Cross of Christ covers our sin and therefore it is our boast. So it's the wise person who follows Jesus. Because the wise person is able to see down the road and see into eternity. And see that it is worth everything we might face in this life. It's folly, it's short-sighted, it's vanity to live any other way. To grab with gusto the trinkets and toys of this world is a folly because they all pass away. That's not to deny there's nothing attractive now 
in them, but it all passes away. It does not last forever. No matter what we face as we follow Jesus, and there will be hard times, on that day, we'll look at him and understand that it was worth it all. And on that day, he promises to wipe away every tear, every sorrow, every pain, and every hurt. He promises to do it on that day. He does not promise it in this life. That's what we might like. That's not always what he does. Sometimes difficult decisions remain in this life. And I cannot explain the ways of God to you. They are higher than my thinking. They are above me, beyond me. But I know he's faithful and I know he's good. And I know he says nothing can separate you from his love. Because your love is not being evaluated. Or his love, I should say, is not being evaluated by what he's done for you lately. You're evaluating his love by what Jesus did at the cross of Christ. We'll spend eternity marveling at the lamb slain for us. On that day, we will see him clearly and behold him as he really is. So the cross of Christ is our boast now. And brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ is going to be our boast in eternity. We will sing about the lion and the lamb there forever and ever. It will be glorious. We sing about it now. Sing about it then. We practice now for heaven. When we're there, it will all seem familiar. Because we're practicing now for then. Because we have the kingdom of God in our heart. We have love, joy, and peace. It's it's a foretaste. It's faint. But it'll be familiar when we're there. We won't be out of place. It will simply be perfected in us. And it will be glorious. So we're practicing now for heaven. And there it will be glorious. So the cross is the way we're accepted by God. That's why it matters most. That's why it's our boast. So I want to invite you to always consider Jesus. Fix your gaze on him and his work on the cross. And in all of this, we will never ever move beyond Jesus Christ. So I invite you to survey the wondrous cross and behold everything Christ did for us there. I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward if they would and we'll sing a song in closing. And while they come, I'd like to pray for us. Let's just bow our heads together. Lord, one short verse, but it covers a lot of ground. I ask in your kindness and mercy that each person here today would be clear where they are with Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that none would be condemned thinking they aren't measuring up somehow to what they're doing in their life. I ask that there would be a dying to self and a looking to Christ. Lord, if there's anyone present who is not a believer, I ask that you would break through convicting of sin and showing the beauty of Jesus. For most of us, thank you for shedding your blood on our behalf. What are we that we are mindful, that you are mindful of us? Marvel at your patience with us and your love for us and that nothing can separate us from your love is astonishing because we're so inclined to drift and think 
that our circumstances somehow have meant no love for us. But Lord, I ask that we'd see the cross, see the work of Jesus done there on our behalf. And I ask that you change our hearts and our lives for your glory so that we die to self, so Jesus lives in us, and so we minister Christ to others. Lord, fill us with your spirit and do that in our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.